name's Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, the show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Mike, there is so many things going on that I thought we should just jump right into the news. proportion on the bottom. Can we discuss this new Academy diversity rules? Every time I open up social media, there's an article about it. Someone's writing about it. People are pissed at it. Well, the new Academy rules are essentially to add a diversity component to the Oscar race. And the whole idea is the Oscars have had 80 plus years of celebrating, for the most part, white films by white filmmakers, very often with all white cast. Obviously, there are notable exceptions, and it makes the news. Wow, first black actor, second black actor to ever, you know, first <laughs> black person to History ever. has you know, been made. History has been made. So fine. Okay, but I believe that the Oscars are taking the position that they are supposed to be the leaders in the industry. The this de is facto, what you're, the default storytelling of America. Not not just a default, but they're the measure of excellence. They're the measure of importance, and and it comes back down to the importance of storytelling, the importance of being represented, the importance of embracing. If we're going to have the power to tell stories, if we're going to give accolades we're going to give awards fine we've been giving them all these years to all these white folks let's change the game would a woody allen film ever be nominated for an oscar i doubt it anymore be not just because of woody's uh past but because woody makes films that take place in woody's universe and he doesn't know black people and that's great but should those kind of films be the ones that are nominated constantly that's the history this is, in my opinion, is bringing the Oscars into the future. Starting in 2024, best picture categories, best picture nominations need to fit two. Two out of four. Two out of the four standards. The first standard, which is on-screen representation, themes and narratives. The second one is creative leadership and project team. The third is industry access and opportunities. And the fourth is audience development. Now, that's all behind the scenes because this is actually going to begin in 2022 for they want to have this inclusion standard behind the scenes. Well, Michael, Michael B. Jordan's been talking about that uh, inclusivity writer as well as Francis McDormand at the last mm -hmm. Oscars. They've been talking about these inclusivity writers. And I think this is more like a sum of realized of all those individual actors, producers that have been wanting to include these these writers uh, to make their films more diverse. Like Francis McDormand, I, I'm not working in another film if there's not at least 10 cinematographers, grips, you know, uh, black, diverse, Chinese, Latino in my movies. If not, don't even call me for it. You know, for these celebrities to do it, Michael Jordan, uh, Francis McDormand, and there's some others who, you know, are have made it part of what they are doing. There are some filmmakers who have always pushed for diversity on their crew, whether it's Ava DuVernay or, or Spike Lee and people like that, John Leguizamo, who we're going to talk to later. The main thing or, or the main problem is that you have to recognize that there is a problem. Maybe this isn't the best way to address it, but it does address it. And there's a lot of backlash, which we're going to talk about. But I, I do think that this is something that these actors, if you've got the power to make a change, then you should use it. I think this is bullshit, man. Watch TV, Law & Order. We're already in these shows. We play gang members, maids, criminals. Yeah, but those aren't the films that win Oscars. 12 Years a Slave was about slavery. Yes, it was. I agree with you that it's more important to have people behind the scenes or people in the room making decisions to get the, the right kind of films and have these stories. And obviously, 
it's important for if it's a story about an underrepresented community to give someone from that underrepresented community the ability or, or the power to write that script or direct that film. That's, in my opinion, a given. But if you look at what has won over the last 20 years, Gladiator in 2000, how many black people were in that? <laughs> A a beautiful mind. How many black people were in that? (laughs) Chicago. Lord of the Rings. How many black hobbits were there? Million Dollar Baby. Now, Million Dollar Baby did have one black character. Yes. And Crash did. But The Departed, The King's Speech, uh, The Artist, Argo. Argo. I mean, it's about a Latino, but they recast it with a white person. Yeah. And Ben Affleck never wanted to talk about it. (laughs) Since Moonlight, in my opinion. Things have been beginning to change because since Moonlight, we had Moonlight, Shape of Water, Green Book, Parasite. Okay, now all of a sudden. But hold on a second. Okay, so 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 this is where everything gets a little like muddled. All right, talk to me. I get that these diversity rules are now being put in place for 2024 for the Best Picture category. And it's because everyone's been bitching and ranting so much about diversity in Hollywood that the Academy needs to do something. So Kirsten Alley and James Woods go out on the record and say, you don't tell Pablo Picasso to put in a black, you know, bird in his blue period piece. Fuck Kirstie Alley. Fuck James Woods. Fuck Dean Cain. Let me tell you something. If things were fair. If all oh, this diversity and give everybody the freedom. Yeah, everybody's had this freedom for 100 years making movies. It's only in the last five years we're beginning to see some change. If things were fair, if they were going to be fair, if we were going to be represented well, there wouldn't be the whining. This is exactly what happened with the civil rights movement and the backlash. Oh, it's in the quotas and the this and that. Well, hey, hello. If things were fair, we wouldn't have to do this. They are doing it because things aren't fair. This may not be the best solution, granted, but things are not fair. These rules suck. They're bullshit. They're phony. They're just a stunt PR thing. I don't take this seriously at all. Would it have been better for them to do nothing? Haven't they already been casting Latinos in roles pejorative to us? You know, they're demeaning and degrading and reductive to us all the time. How many times has John Legazamo said they don't give a shit about us? They don't care about us. They don't love us. They don't see us. They don't see us as human beings. Let's say a white filmmaker, uh, David Fincher, they're going to make a movie. All right. And he's doing it with Ben Affleck and, and and Gillian Flynn. You think the dude's going to cast a Hispanic lead to get into the Best Picture nominee? He's going to fucking hire whoever he feels is the best person. And in his white view, it's white people doing that. You'll you'll rarely have a Damon Lindelof who decides to do Watchmen and remake it in a black gaze. These filmmakers who have the power to do something, they're not going to do that. They're going to cast it the way they want. Somebody made a point about this the other day. Um, about these Academy rules, he's like, yeah, if you're a bigger movie, you know how you fulfill this quota? You fulfill it by hiring 50 black and Latino interns and having them sit in the bags like, yeah, yeah, you know, according to uh, what you wanted, here's what the rule said. And we, you know, fulfilled that honor with interns. First of all, you can't hire interns anymore on on a movie set. That doesn't happen anymore. And I agree that they may end up hiring people of color or any other underrepresented in lower positions. But guess what? They wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. They wouldn't have gotten in unless they had to do it. And this, to me, like so many things that had to happen, I wish it didn't have to happen. I wish that we didn't have to have any kind of rules to say you have to do something. You have to make a change. They've been, like you said, they've been crying about the lack of diversity for years. You know, when we spoke to to both Calixto from the New York Latin Film Festival and John Leguizamo, they both said the same thing, that unfortunately, the last 20 years, not that much progress has been made, especially for Latinos. White people just want to do white movies, man. And it's rare that you get one of them that gives a shit about our culture and the sure. way we view things. Sure. Look, That's Pixar did Coco and it won an Oscar. But damn it, they had to get Adrian Molina. They got to get a bunch of Mexican consultants to come in. Those moments where a white filmmaker wants to do something that they celebrate, that they feel like they they have part ownership on and that is not necessarily cultural appropriation because it's collectively bringing everybody together and make them feel a part of it but it's led by a white guy and yeah, i said to john john we, we can't do this man this whole idea of david ayers 
doing Latino movies under a white fucking gaze has to damn stop. It's not stopping. If I'm a filmmaker and now they have these new rules where they have to do films and they have to tell stories that are adult stories, you know, what, what wins Oscars? Generally, some kind of story that touches upon the human condition that says something hopefully universal. If you look again at the last five years of the films, they haven't all been made by white filmmakers trying to tell a black or, or story of color. They've actually been films made by people from the, with the exception of Green Book, of course. They've actually been films like Moonlight, I, I guess, really a parasite of the, the best examples. Then 12 Years a Slave. So you got three out of, of 17 films. So to me, the reason they're doing this is because this is not going to solve the problem. This is not going to solve the problem. It's Listen, not going to solve the problem, but it's a step. On-screen representation to me is the most important standard in these rules, and that's already being done. There's no specification on the quality of the role that these Hispanics or BIPOCs need to have. There should sure. have been some sort of lettering and some wording legally that would have said, hey, this person cannot be treated as a maid or as a criminal or anything like that. It has to be done as a lawyer or a professional, et cetera, et cetera. I would have been much more content with that. Yes, we do have to ram it down their throats. Yes, we do have to push to make that change because it's not going to happen. Everything you said is completely true. But for them to say, oh, you have to have these good stories, we have to hope. Now, again, this is a big hope. We have to hope that they're going to want to tell stories. To have a story that's inclusive is not going to just be a white character that, that they put in blackface or a, a minor character that has nothing to do with the plot. They have hopefully are going to want to tell more diverse stories. You believe that this new diversity rules is actually going to help. And I'm telling you that I don't think it's going to help. What do you think is going to happen? I just think that it's business as usual, Mike. I think these guys are going to ignore this. They're going to find loopholes where it's like, oh, uh, on the um, on the industry access and opportunities uh, section, you know, we fulfilled that part. And in terms of the on-screen representation, we got, you know, the Michael Pena character, you know, as the gardener. Damn. Like, Better Life in Demian Bichir. He was nominated for an Oscar for Best Acting as a gardener. Dude. Yes, you fulfilled the quota. But it's how you fulfill it. Your reason for not liking it is completely different than the reasons that uh, James Woods, Kirstie Alley, and Dean Kane. I think it says something that these are all actors who are way past their prime and are not of any relevance and have a history of being, you know, let's just say way to the right. They're definitely all Trump supporters. I was just so, going to say, all three of them are Trump supporters. Let's put it this way. They as an actor, may be worried, and any white actor may be worried, wow, that means I might guess less roles. Mm. Instead of hiring a white butler or a, a white criminal, they might hire a person of color. Let's not forget, Morgan Freeman was on Electric Company and doing plays and things. His breakout role was playing a pimp, okay? And he was so good that he got nominated for an Oscar. Is that a role I think he's proud of? No, but he played the shit out of that pimp and it led to him being a Morgan Freeman today. Right, but what, what, what that just propagates and reinforces is that you're good at what I've always seen you as, a pimp. Which is what? A pimp. I saw you and your race as a pimp. Now go play me a pimp and get yourself yeah. an Oscar. Oh, and I'll right. never. But, and, and, and he works so good as a pimp that why would I ever see you in any other way? That Miami Chid played a gardener, got nominated for an Oscar. So if white people are nominating us in the most stereotypical of roles, Mike, then what is the aspiration for us to become better? I'd rather not get nominated for that at all. I understand where you're coming from. But the reality, the reality of the world we live in this country and the, and, the, and the way this industry is and the reality of being an actor, there's very few actors who did not, were not a type. And if you're an actor and you're a type, however Hollywood casting sees you as a type, if you're Julia Roberts, you see you as the girl next door. If you're, you're Brad Pitt, you're the, the, the cute boy. They all started their careers playing some stereotypical role. Okay. But that role, they played the shit out of that role. So they... We're able now to move on to other things. Morgan Freeman started out playing a pimp, but now he's played God. So what does that say? 
that says that, yes, these humble beginnings, I, I think it sucks. I don't want to see any more black pimps. I don't want to see any more black uh, 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 prostitute roles and all, all the things that are out there. But at the same time, if you're going to tell a story, okay, whether it's a story about poverty or if it's a story about affluence and you show or have a diversity of characters. Those actors are going to get opportunities. Those writers are getting opportunities. This is forcing the industry to give opportunities. Now, what those opportunities will be and how much they'll be held down, you know, we all know what that's going to be. But it's, in my opinion, it's better than it's been and it's the beginning of change. to the New York Latino Film Festival, which is the second uh, news story out of the, our brown and black universe. The New York Latino Film Festival is returning September 14th through the 20th. They're now featuring drive-in experiences in the South Bronx. They're doing some virtual programming. Uh, you and I had a chance to talk to Calixto Chinchilla, uh, which you've known for quite some time, um, and so have I. And uh, they're having the opening night film be a movie, a world premiere of a movie called Abla Now, the New York premiere of Charm City Kids with uh, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, I believe are the producers, and John Leguizamo's Critical Thinking, which we will also be interviewing later on in this podcast. Um, how, how long do you know? Uh, w- what's your friendship with Calixto? Uh, well, you know, I've known Calixto for a very long time, actually. I knew Calixto at least 20 years. And when he first started the New York Latino Film Festival, and, and I used to be part of it, I was uh, I, I was part of the HBO used to have a pitch contest, and I sat on panels there and stuff. So Calixto is someone who's always had a similar mentality to you and I, you know, about inclusiveness, about having brown and black unity, which is something we talked to him because we talked to him about his thoughts on the Oscars, but also what his thoughts are on the importance of brown and black unity and how that's been part of the history of the festival. Did the New York Latino Film Festival at any moment, did you ever consider canceling the event this year? To be honest with you, no. So I think we thought about moving it. I think we were looking at what other festivals were doing and trying to figure out how to pivot. I also think, you know, whether we were going to go fully digital or not, that was something that was all in the conversation. Moving the festival, which was what we ended up doing to September. So knock on wood, when we made our first move, it's the last move. So we decided a while ago that we were going to move into September as soon as it was clear that theaters were not going to open up. And we stuck to our September dates. What do you see happening in the industry now that you didn't see maybe 15, 20 years ago? Or do you think things are the same? Unfortunately, a lot of things are are the same, but a lot of good things have changed. So when you have like the academy that's making its diversity, you know, its diversity play the other day, you know, that's certainly a big change that I never saw coming. And when you see more executives of color in lead positions, I think Black Lives Matter and that this whole moment of quarantine kind of woke people up on there's a clear lack of diversity that is happening in the industry and Latinos and Blacks are being affected the most economically, health-wise with this virus, this frustration, representation matters. And that's really ringing loud and clear. I think it's beginning to resonate with studios and other executives. We need to be in the room. And yet there's still more rooms that we need to be in uh, that we're not. You know I mean? Latinos still, if you look at statistics, we're low in numbers in television. We're low in numbers on film representation. 
So that still needs to change, right? And so it, it takes a minute, right? And look how long it took us to get to where we are with the Oscars. So, you know, I think it's it's a matter of being patient and yet being vigilant to keep it going and to keep pushing and striving. And that's where what we've been trying to do. Calixto, you were talking about the Academy Awards new diversity rules. Do you think it's progress or it's tokenism? Mm, good question. I think it's sincere. I think it's progress for sure. How it impacts what, what the nominees are, we'll wait and see. You know what I mean? But now with that, there's a mandate that you have to have this when you start shooting. You know what I mean? And studios are aware of it. I think it's just also like they don't know how. And it's like, well, how do organizations like us help you? Like, how do we bring bring you to water and say, well, you know what? We have these creators that are here. We know directors that are here. We know writers, actors. And how about we introduce you to them? And I think that that's what we've been fortunate in recent time to be able to do is to be that filter for not only content, um, but also for talent. And that's really where I think the sweet spot of where we're at now. You know, it's not just a festival where you sit down for a week, yeah, and it's done. You know, I think we've morphed into an influential position and we want to continue to step into that. So that's where we're at right now. So it's beyond just a week long event. We've been doing other things throughout the year and really kind of just diversifying, you know, what we do. Now we have an agency, now we run a digital conference. And now we just want to keep growing. From the very beginning, you were always about, in my opinion, diversity and, and inclusivity. I was on panels as much as any other Latino filmmaker or someone else in the business. And that's a large part of why Jack and I are doing this podcast specifically. What are your thoughts on, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, but Brown Lives Matter and, yeah. you know, brown stories matter. For me, I've always taken for granted. I grew up in a mixed, you know, household. So I have Black Dominican, Puerto Rican, like everyone in my family. And so I, I, to a certain extent, I've taken that lens for granted, thinking that everyone else thought like me, but it really helped that growing up in my life now, you know, has helped shape what I think Latino is. And this is what the definition of is and, and the multiculturalism of the culture. And we've exhibited that since day one. And it used to be criticized from Latinos. Oh, they're showing too many Moreno stuff, which some people know that word, but black stuff. Oh, they're showing too much this. I'm like, okay, well, then this is, you don't need to come to this festival. Or maybe you can see what you want to do, but I'm not changing this. And so we've always had the conversation of black and brown. And I don't even like to say brown when it comes to Latinos because Latinos are black too. So black and Latino. And, um, you know, we've always had, and even LGBTQ stories, we always had this place of, inclusion, but from the most authentic place. And that space needs to begin not only, you know, what you put out, but what you, what you, the work and the people that are working with you from inside. So for example, the, the first director of the film festival was black and a woman. She wasn't even for Latino. She was like black. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't care. Like that wasn't even a thought because she knew films, she knew festivals and she knew what we were doing. And if you look at our, our click, Anybody can tell you it's a reflection of what we put out. For me, that that happens when you're authentic from the start. And people can tell even more so on social media, the real from the fake. So for me, that's that's always what I wanted us to be about. And that's what, you know, that's in everything that we touch and our marketing and the audiences, as you know. I'm not new to this conversation. Maybe some of the you know, Latino organizations are. That's OK. But I'm not new to this. Calixto, what can you tell us about this year's uh, festival? What's different than other years outside of, you know, the physical uh, bringing together the parties, the red carpets, everything else? What kind of films are you sort of just kind of looking to present and showcase this year that maybe you didn't get a chance to in the previous years? You know, knock on wood, we got everything that we wanted. I think at the same time, we also projected what 21 was going to look like. So if you look at Creatives of Color... Not only we hit in every which way what's happening now, but we're going to be hit with investment. And so there is going to be it's going to be hard to get that investment for that independent film. And and the financial impact is going to reverberate beyond just what we know of COVID. Right. And so anticipating that it's like, okay, well, how do we program in advance for 21 and 22, possibly knowing that things could rebound late 21, 22? So you kind of have to program in advance, knowing that you're going to have a shortfall of content because of the financial. And so that's what we've been able to, to do. Is I'm actually, we've worked in two years in advance at this point. And we did oh, that. Nice. From the, yeah. 
Which titles are you most looking forward to showcasing this year? Oh, man, there's so many. And this is, you know, the point of this conversation. You know, you look at, you know, Charm City Kings and you look at, you know, Angel Manuel Soto, Puerto Rican from the island, only made Latino film, like Puerto Rican films. And Will Smith and Jada Pickett Smith, like, chose him to make his first studio film. You knew to Baltimore. You gotta go to the ride. The ride? Every Sunday in the summer, everybody with a bike show out. This bike's far as you can see it. Pull the bike back, straight up, like the hands of a clock when they hit midnight. What's that? That's Midnight Click. They got the best bikes, the best tricks, the best riders. Just flicks. Midnight Click legend. So that's who you want to be down with then? That's what it's about. You know what I mean? And so, you know, here you got this guy from Santulce, which is just as much as a hood as, you know, um, Santos of Puerto Rico was just as much as a hood as Baltimore and him being able to tell the story. And that to me is perfect. Like Latino filmmakers, are creative. we don't, we don't need to marginalize, you know, even ourselves. Like we can tell any story. When you see Charmer City Kings, it, it's just so good. I'm so proud of this man. He's, he's done it as an independent filmmaker and to come out in a big way with Charm City is really good. Abla Now, that's the one that's opening night and it's a docu-series about, you know, Latino stories from tastemakers and influencers. And then, yes, we close it off with John Leguizamo's Critical Thinking. But even outside of that, you know, there's so many different films and web series and documentaries. And we have, a, you know, we have our Futuro Digital Conference that we're doing with Google and the Quintessential Gentleman and La Nova Link. So we bring in outside partners that kind of help us out. And this, again, is to the point of this podcast. It's really getting content creators of color in the room, whether it's podcasters, and you've been to, to Futuro Jack. We dominate in all these areas of consumption. And how do we own a piece of it? And how do we invest in ourselves? And how do we grow and create, you know, even opportunities like this, like what you guys are doing, and make money, you know, and build from it. And it takes a while, but we're getting there, but it, there's power when we put ourselves in rooms together. And that part I wish I wish was happening at Google. Last year was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you got to think out the box and nothing helps in thinking than when you have a room of creatives. And so I'm blessed that we've had a lot of good people that have stepped in inside and outside of the festival to help us in re-envisioning what the New York Latino Film Festival will be. One of my favorite movies of the year so far, Mike, has been Critical Thinking. Um, and as you'll notice in the interview that we had with John Leguizamo, which is... He, the dude's become one of my favorite actors, but also educators and activists to a certain extent. Something that, I, you know, back when I knew him as a, as a comedian, you know, and, and the dude that was doing Ghetto Clown on stage and, and um, was kind of blowing up his own private life for, for comedic purposes... He's become a different man, and in his directorial debut uh, on the big screen, uh, Critical Thinking to me is a Latinx, Latinx chess movie, something that I've never, ever heard of in my life until now, framed in that way, and what I really enjoyed talking to him is, dude, the dude is obviously enlightened. I mean, he's a different man. Latin history for morons and the amount of research he did has now changed him changed the way he speaks changed the way he views the world his worldview has become so alluring and appealing and to talk about the history of latinx people for me man that has taken such a 
such a massive has has created such a massive impact in my life. And uh, man, I, I'm just so glad I got a chance to talk to him. Some incredible wisdom of nuggets. Uh, that he left on this interview. It's interesting. We live in a time where comedians and comedy is more important than ever before. And I think comedy is always teaching us, you know, if you talk to any teacher that what's the best way to teach, the best way to teach is to, to engage and entertain. And that is what I think John Leguizamo has done throughout his entire career. And anybody who can make you laugh is somebody who can make you think. We got our own hot streak here in Miami. It's going to hit 95 we ain't got no milk. Ain't getting none either. Hey, yo! Yo, yo! Now, people, this is gonna be very basic for some of you. What you've got is 64 squares, 32 pieces. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, what Ivy League school you may go or may not go to, because chess is the great equalizer. We got a tournament coming up in a couple days. So we need to start really considering if we're serious about what we're doing here or not. Oh, oh. on the mic, yep. I get hyped. Yeah. Don't mess with me, cause chess is life. Yeah. The minute that you lose, we won't be losing. Today's Hager Monday. Oh. The board is fine spending $400 on footballs, but not with sending kids on a road trip to improve their minds. You can have them play marbles for all I care. Just keep the bodies in the seats. You're underestimating me, okay? And more importantly, them. Kids like this from places like Dade County don't ever make it a team regionals. That shouldn't be too hard for them to swallow. Give up on them, let their parents give up on them, let the whole system give up on them. But you know what? I ain't, okay? This moment right here is the happiest I've ever been in my life. So you come in here bragging because you want a trophy? Play to win! These kids have real potential. My mommy's telling me, make something of myself. Yes, That's something new. Watch out, world. We coming for you. All four of us. Yo, we can be something special. Just remember, your mind can be your weapon. Ooh. From the streets, we were summoned. You've been doing a lot of brown and black movies throughout your career. Like I was just uh, checking out uh, Hanging with the Homeboys. You remember that one. Of course. It's one of my favorite movies. It was my first big hit movie. And we got to Sundance. It, was, it won the, 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 the crowd award. Uh, Joe Vasco was this beautiful guerrilla filmmaker, you know, Puerto Rican brother from the South Bronx, made his movies. Sadly enough, you know, the business kind of broke his heart and disillusioned him. And he really thought that uh, hanging with the homeboys was going to break him out and bust him out. And, you know, being a Latin man in this country is, is a really difficult task, especially if you're ambitious and want to be successful. And so that's sadly, but we did this beautiful movie, man. It, it, it was uh, Dougie Doug. Yeah. Nessa Serrano. I mean, it was such a, it was like, that's what being a homeboy was back in the day. It was a lot of fun, man. And, you know, we've been talking about Latinx directors and he was one of them. Yes, he was. Frank Reyes was another. Wrote, directed produce his own stuff. I mean, Empire was was an incredible flick. You know, we got into Sundance with that one as well. Money is what life is all about. Getting it, losing it, needing it, living it, and dying for it. That's what the American dream is about. I got me a $40,000 truck. I park in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country, but no one touches it. Why? Respect. My name is Victor Rosa. I'm young, Latin, and good-looking made crazy money for a Sundance film for only $2 million. Made like uh, $20 million at the box office. Although I would have made more. But all <laughs> I, I tell you why. I tell you why. Why? Why? Because our contracts all were at $21 million. We would all get crazy bumps. And you're like, wait a minute. The oh, movie wow. stopped just before everybody got their crazy payoffs. Hmm. Think about that. And then it made fifty million on DVD. You know, huh. it was so by eighth, design. It was eighth, eighth in the in the the top ten movies. It wow. was by design, dude, wow. because they didn't want to pay you guys up, man. That's a no, problem that we no. all face. But now you're uh, doing your feature directorial debut with Critical Thinking, and uh, you star as Mario Martinez in a real life story about a teacher who, in 1998, guided five black and brown students from Miami Jackson High School to become the first ever inner city school to win the U.S. National Chess championship so you know if i had to describe the movie 
it'd be if searching Bobby Fisher had a baby with stand and deliver, you'd get critical. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. It, it is kind of like the, a love child. They had a little love child. <laughs> they had a little but, love but child. A lot, but a lot of passionate sex first. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because of critical thinking, I had to rewatch stand and deliver because there were so many things that I saw that were commonalities between those two movies, like for example, the part that you say that chess is the great equalizer and in Stand and Deliver, Jaime Escalante, where James Olmos' character says, math is the great equalizer. I wanted to talk to you how much that movie as a director and as an actor uh, had an influence in critical thinking. Oh my God, because you know, back then, you know, we hardly saw ourselves, man. You, you hardly saw yourself in any positive role, no superheroes, no comics, no, <laughs> no TV show, no picture book for children, uh, no sitcom. It, it was impossible. And then when you saw something like that, it was like, it like knocked the air out of you. You're like, oh my God, we, <laughs> we exist. We contribute. We're positive. We're intellectual. We're gifted. You know, uh, it, it just, you know, it was, it, 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 just, it was just a little bit of oxygen you needed to get, to keep going in life, you know, and keep believing in your dreams. For me as a, wanting to be an actor and aspiring director and writer. What made you decide to not just be in this, but direct this? Because, you know, this is quite a challenge, I think. You know, it's not easy to make playing chess interesting. There was a horrible book that came out in the 1990s that really devastated my self-esteem. It was called The Bell Curve. And at the time, nobody knew that they were fake scientists and that the research was shoddy and, and, and made up. But it was the proof of the book was the, the, what the guys were trying to prove was that Latin and black people were born genetically, intellectually inferior. Wow. I remember. A, a, they were everywhere. <laughs> you know, they were on PBS. They were on all the news shows. And I was like, what? Am I really born intellectually inferior? Can I not achieve genetically? Obviously, it was bogus, made up, but who knew at the time till they were called out and they called out all their fake tests. So when this movie came up, I was like, this is like the antidote to that, to that bullshit. This is the, the vaccine against it. This is the one that says, look, these kids from the most underprivileged backgrounds, the most defunded public schools, they're still gifted. They're still talented. They're still street intellectuals, ghetto nerds, bookworms. You know, they exist. All they need is a, somebody to nurture them with a little water and boom, they sprout, you know, and, and that's what this movie is for me. It's the proof that we, that that book is wrong, that we are intellectually gifted, that we are equal. You know, they've done some tests in, um, in Florida public schools because they were trying to find out why Latin and black kids were not in the gifted programs. And then the, t the research found out that it was when the parents and the teachers were the ones selecting, they didn't pick the Latin and black kids. They picked the white kids. When they took all that out and put just metrics, measurements, tests, the classes filled up with Latin and black kids. They were the majority. When, when they took out the parents and the teachers who were profiling, obviously, and, uh, and damaging that, that situation for those kids, their futures. How do we get Latin X movies in Hollywood? Stand and Deliver was released by Warner Brothers. Uh, La Bamba was released by Columbia Pictures. So there was a history before of Hollywood studio companies releasing Latinx prestige films that would go to number one. La Bamba hit the Billboard charts at number one as well. Uh, Edward James Olmos was nominated for an Oscar. There is the ability for this to come back, to renew, to have a rebirth of these films. It doesn't need to be a rebirth. We just need... A birth, come on. I mean, we didn't just get here. We've been here right. 500 years. We discovered America. We found it. We built it. The British took it from us. The Americans took the rest. And before that, we were the biggest empires in the world. The Incas, the Mayas, the Aztec, Comanche, Apache. And then we didn't stop there. Land people have fought in every single war America's ever had. And we're the most decorated minority in each and every single war. American Revolutionary War, 10,000 Latinx people fought. We had a general, Galvez, with an army of 3,000 Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Mexican-Americans, freed slaves and Native Americans, and they kicked the British out of the South so they couldn't uh, uh, trap the, the, the Patriots in New England. Now, I'm not talking about the football team. I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the Minutemen. And then 20,000 of us fought in the Civil War with getting Medals of Honor, Puerto Rican Lieutenant Augusto Rodriguez, 
uh, Chilean um, Felipe Pizarro got a Medal of Honor from Abraham Lincoln, the first Admiral David Faragut. 120,000 was fought in World War One. 500,000 of us fought in World War II. That's a huge contribution and sacrifice to the making of America. Where are those stories? I mean, we have millions of stories. What's damning it up? What's blocking, cock blocking our success? Did you encounter any resistance to make this movie? I had heard that you couldn't even get the money to make, get this film done. You pitched them all kinds of movies, comedies, sitcoms. They don't get it. They don't get you. They don't see you. They, they laugh. They go, it's well written. But, you know, when, and when this movie, I was like, I got a tight story. I got a certain amount of success and leverage. Dito Montel wrote a dope story. It's true. And I go to the studios and they tell me, you know, Latin people don't want to see Latin people. I'm going, what? I'm like, wow. My head is like, <laughs> Latin people don't want to see feel good movies. I'm, excuse me? What do we want to see? Just depressing uh, suicidal flicks? I mean, where did, you get your, where did you get your studies from? And then so I couldn't do it with the studios because they don't see, they don't see us, man. They don't get us. They don't love us. They don't care for us. So I went and raised the money myself. And here we are. Now, did you always want to direct it? Was, did this come to you as something you wanted to direct from, from day one? No, no. I, I was just going to star in it. And then they offered it to me to direct. I was like, yeah, I, I, I think I can really bring value to this flick. I really think I could add a little extra and, and get it done right. Within the, the script, you know, you sneak in everything that Jack was just talking about. You know, you have a line in there for the teacher who says something about history and how brown and black, you know, is just completely erased yeah. from history. So we don't have that sense of uh, not just history, but just, you know, pride even right. for what we've achieved. And, no, and other people don't see us in the same way either because they don't see our achievements either. That's how a white supremacist can come into a Latin community and shoot up 23 and kill 23 people living their lives, their Latin lives, you know, just in a mall. Because if you had seen our contributions in textbooks and history books, you would be respecting us and you wouldn't be attacking us. And nobody would allow you to do that when you see black and Latin contributions to America in textbooks. And I'll tell you something, in Arizona, Latin history is against the law. And in Texas, a lot of teachers told me they're allowed only one day to teach Latin history in their history classes, even though Texas is 40% Latin and 12% black. We spoke to uh, Kevin Wilmot and Trey Byers the other day about, uh, about a movie called 24th that just came out. Oh, right. And he was talking about the same. My editor edited that movie. Get out of here. Jamie Kirkpack, he loves that flick. He talks so talks big that movie big and we talked about you in that podcast yes we did about the problems of of latino representation because i had said to him i said listen man much like john legazamo i have not seen myself in these in these movies and the idea is is there even an appetite john for latino historical dramas much like 24th about the black infantry that went apeshit in 1917 because they couldn't take it anymore why is it that the Civil War, the American Revolutionary War, World War II, all these figures, all these leaders we have not seen, is there not an appetite for that at all? No, I, I think there's an appetite. It's just because in, the, in our history textbooks, it's not there. So people start thinking that it's a fantasy, that it's made up, that it's Hollywood. That's part of the problem. Uh, Band of Brothers should have had a brown brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were there and black brothers were there as well, you know? Uh, we need the representation. Uh, it's the appetite is there. Look, Lin Manuel's Hamilton is the biggest hit Broadway in Broadway history in the hundred odd two years or whatever, one hundred fifty years of Broadway's history. If you would have pitched that to a, a network, to a studio, to a streamer, <laughs> would have never got done. They would have been, excuse me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hamilton is Puerto Rican and Burr is black. The founding fathers were turning their grace. They didn't, I got to, excuse me, but they did not speak in rap in the 1700s, I assure you. It would have right. never got done because there are no gatekeepers on Broadway. That's why I get my shit done on Broadway because there's no gatekeepers. Mm. There's only, you got your script, it's tight, it's dope. You can raise the money, bam, it's yours. You rent out a shell. Looking at your life and your career, uh, everything that, that Jack and I are talking about and what, what part of the show is uh, about identity and representation. And 
you know, we've, we touched upon even last week or last show with Kevin Wilmot, we talked about, you know, the importance of not just knowing history. His quote was that uh, we don't own history. History owns us. What are your thoughts on just representation? How will that change? Because for you, you've played every kind of cat. You've played clowns. You've played sloths. <laughs> you've played teachers. You know, so you've shown not only can you, you can work in any medium. You can do comedy. You can do, you know, what more needs to happen, do you think, for I, the identity, not just for us to see ourselves, but for others to start to see us differently? Executives. You need, we, we need Latin executives. We need... You know, with 50% of the population of Los Angeles, Hollywood, and less than 3% of the, the faces in front of the camera, less than 2% of the crew behind the camera, and less than 1% of the, the, the stories, 50% of the population, that's cultural apartheid. In New York, we're equal to whites in population, and less than 1% of the staff at the New York Times, New York Magazine, anything with a New York banner. How is that possible? That's cultural apartheid. You know what I mean? That's, that's, it's called psychosocial erasure. That's what we live through being a Latin person and a black person in America, but especially Latinx. We're just the least represented minority in children's picture books when we're 30% of the United States public schools. How does a kid build his self-esteem? How does he build his self-love and his self-worth? never seeing himself represented in, in children's picture books. Then it keeps growing on as you get older and older, the lack of representation, the lack of seeing yourself in a, in a successful way. How do you project yourself? How do other people say, oh, you know, Latin people should be running this company. Latin people should be the, the New York Times editor. Because we should be. You know, where, where we have metrics, we fucking win. Like in Spotify, Jay Balvin, my, my Colombian brother, is, is number one international world star because you can measure those hits. In the billboard, my Dominican sister Cardi B is number one. Camila Cabello was in the top 10, my Cuban sister. Maluma, my other Colombian brother. Uh, Bad Bunny, I mean, you name it. We're in, in baseball, because we got stats. In politics, AOC, Veronica Escobar, uh, Xavier Bercera, uh, uh, Attorney General in, in California, Catalina Cruz, Cindy Polo in Miami, uh, Debbie, where, where we can count votes, but when it's an executive's taste and his opinion, we're done. When it's an, an executive at, at New York Times and it's their opinion, we're done. Can you please explain Hispanics for Trump for me? Can you please explain Ted Cruz? <laughs> That's like Road to Rubio. Parade. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I find it, I find Latin Republicans for Trump disgusting. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't mind Latin Republicans, but for Trump, who said horrible things about my Mexican brothers and sisters, who try to take away the bilingual government page, who's limiting the immigration of legal immigrants to our country only from Latin and Black countries, who who threw paper towels at at Puerto Ricans who were. At, I, 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 in dire straits and then jokingly said, I, should, I want to sell Puerto Rico. Disgusting. I mean, how can you, how can you look at yourself in the mirror and call yourself Latin and go, I don't care about my other Latin brothers. I just care about me. Nah, that doesn't, that doesn't, no, no. You can be Republican, but you can't be for Trump. You just can't. Well, you know, I have to ask you a question because uh, you're done. Like, um, you know, similar to what Jack asked you, and I would love to get your perspective on this. One of the things that Jack and I have discussed, and, and I actually, I, I feel like I, I was a bit naive. I did not realize there was so much uh, hate or, or animosity that there were so many Latinos who don't like black people at all, who are, hate the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I really haven't heard that much of that because I've seen more, I don't know, maybe, maybe the grams that I follow and the Facebook pages, they all seem mad positive. That's what I've seen. It's been disturbing for me. I, yeah. It's something I never noticed. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's mad racism in the Latin community. I mean, they. I mean, all that. I mean, look, look at look at that beautiful lady who was in Roma. Oh, Yalitza Aparicio. Yeah, that beautiful indigenous face, and and they put her on the cover of of one of the top magazines. Vogue. She got so much hate from Latin people across Latin America. How could you put such an ugly face? How could you put this and that? She's not attractive enough. You know, there's so much self-hate, so much European um, 
ideals of beauty still inflicted upon us. You know, you, you look at you look at Latin TV and you go, you see the, some of the whitest looking people and you're like, yo, that's like 1% of the population in any of those countries. How are they, that's the standard of beauty? You, you, you know, that that's, that's it's a huge problem in our communities. Our self-hate, my aunts with dark skin, you know, and they would always, their, their face would be like 50 shades lighter than their neck because they didn't have enough money to buy the neck part makeup <laughs> to lighten their necks. You know, what did you what did you make of the Goya CEO when he said that Donald Trump is a brand builder? Did you stop buying Goya products? Should we all as Latinos stop uh, promoting that? Because, you know, it was a it was a moral conflict that I particularly had. I grew up with Goya. Of course, you did. I grew up with Goya. It was part of my childhood. And then all of a sudden I have to kind of like hate this guy. What is your perspective on how Latinos should kind of look at this situation? Because it's not something we've ever had to really confront. But I mean, he's a moron. First of all, anybody who says that Trump is a successful businessman, six bankruptcies. (laughs) If they they said that if Trump had left all the millions that his father gave him and never touched it, he'd be so much richer now. And then he he bankrupted a a casino. Who bankrupts a casino? The the, the tables are rigged to the favor of the house. It's like he's he's bankrupting America now, man. The inflation that's coming from Trump's policies are just printing money and and, and lowering the interest rates. Inflation is going to bite us in the ass. Mm. Anyway, yeah, Goya, you know, goodbye. Because I'm done with that. You know, I I started. I looked up how to make my own sazon. My own. My wife's making her own sofrito. Right. You know what? Take out the MSG. Take out the nitrates. We're better off without all that garbage in our food. What is it? What uh, sazon is what? Uh, Garlic powder, onion powder, coriander powder, cumin, uh, achote. Put some paprika in there. Pepper. Paprika. No, no, achote. Achote. Yeah, achote. Ah, okay. That's our indigenous red, uh, red, red dye kind of flavor. Uh, you know, you mentioned before the importance, as we were talking about images and representation. We had a writer, an illustrator named Eric Velasquez on, and he had written a children's book because he's an Afro-Latino, Puerto Rican, you know, from the Bronx, and dark, darker, darker than me. And when he wrote this book, it was called Grandma's Records, and it came out, it was the first Afro-Latino oh, book wow. for children ever. Ever. And this is like in the 2000s. Now, does that, A, does that blow your mind? And then the second part of that is, what was it like for you now working with all these young actors? Because you have some great talent oh, wow. in there. That, are, you, are you inspired oh, by the yeah. future? Do you think some of these are going to do? Because some of them, some of your actors are filmmakers too. You know, it was incredible. I mean, first of all, it was so difficult to pick my talent because there was so many Latinx and black talented wow. youth in America, hundreds. They were all blew my mind. First of all, I was just like so pumped up that I was like, oh my God, you're better than, oh wait, you're even better. Wow, you, the talent was ridiculous. <laughs> so to, to, the only way for me to narrow it down was like, oh, I'm just gonna pick people that look like the character or, or they embody the personality exactly. So, cause you know, I, I'm directing, I'm in it. I'm producing it. I don't have the time to develop it all the way there. You know, I need you to be halfway there already. So that's what I did, man. The, the amount of talent out there, dude, is so beautiful. Mm. There was like this whole conversation about whether white filmmakers, white storytellers, should they still be uh, telling black stories, telling Len X stories? Where do you feel, like, for example, one of the big problems is, like, In the Heights is coming out, yet John Chu, an Asian, uh, he's the one that directed it. Shouldn't it been have a, a Latino tell that story? Shouldn't Latinos tell their stories as opposed to white creators and white storytellers tell our stories? No, that's an interesting question, man. It's a, it's a, I mean, in, in, in the ideal world, we should all be directing everybody's stories because we should all be empathic and and uh, understanding of each other's stories, because we're all human beings. It's all the same story in a way, you know? But and, and but it doesn't flow that way, you know? Obviously, Latin actors, directors, are not really asked to direct a lot of white movies. Although Alfonso Cuaron's done pretty well, and, and Guillermo del Toro and Yunaritu, they do a lot of white films, and not as many Latinx films. Uh, you know, it, it's complicated, man. I mean, I, I, I like my Latinx directors to have an opportunity and a chance but if somebody's championing a story for us, 
I'll take that too. I don't like when, you know, like Argo, <laughs> somebody playing, taking a, a Puerto Rican role from a, you know, FBI when we have such a few positive stories. That was, that was kind of tougher for me. What kind of advice do you give to young people coming up in the business now? Because you've been in the business for a minute and, you know, you, I'm certain, like you said, you felt you faced all kinds of resistance. Oh, so yeah. two part question. How much do you think things have changed and what advice do you give to young Latinx and, you know, brown and black people of color who want to be in the I say, say yes to everything, you know, even if it's demeaning, you know, even if it's catering for a movie or, or being an assistant's assistant, you got to do it all because some, some way you're, you're learning and absorbing and you'll be able to use that and weaponize that information. Uh, secondly, I say, don't wait for Hollywood, man. Do not wait. It ain't coming for you. <laughs> Make it, write it, produce it, direct it. Watch it yourself if you have to. Do it on social media. Just keep putting it out there. Keep writing it. Don't stop. You know, we, 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 hopefully this is a, a reckoning this, this time right now. And hopefully things are going to change big time. And I have a good feeling about it because I, I really do feel like studios are really trying to be sensitive and understand that they have been in the wrong and that they've been excluding us completely, Latin and black people. Um, and, and so I, I've seen them reach out. I really have seen publishers because that's where, you know, that's where it's at the worst is for Latin and black, especially Latinx. Um, and movie executives have reached, there are, there are, there, there, I think there is a conscious effort. I, I think we're going to see a big difference after this COVID and, and after this election. I think we really are going to see the impacts of, of, of a new America, even though we have all this white supremacy, QAnon, conspiracy nonsense going on and, 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 and hatred, the pushback, because we're finally getting our, our due, you know, and, and black people are finally getting the respect they deserve. John, what is the future of Latin history for morons? Is this it? Are you still touring it? If you can give us an update on that. And if you can also give us an update on Kiss My Ass Tech, which is a musical you've been working on <laughs> I for quite some time. I kiss your ass tech. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me again. <laughs> <laughs> but will we see it on Broadway whenever the theater comes back? What is the future of that? Well, uh, Latin history for morons is on Netflix. I'm not going to tour with it anymore because I, I, I put it down. But... I, I am from the tour. I taped some new bits that are so dope. I got a little more courage to put in more history. So that's going to be, there's going to be a new release of Latin history for on, on Netflix and, and kiss my ass that yo, it's gotten so tight. It's so funny. The music is so tight and dope. It, it, it's going to be mind blowing. It's going to be like book of Mormon meets spam a lot, but really funny, man. And, and about conquest. Cause you know, conquest is hilarious. <laughs> and I, I'm hoping, you know, hoping Broadway, uh, maybe 2022 spring, 2022 spring. Wow. All right. Great. For you now, uh, doing this and having directed this, this feature film and the temperature and everything where you are, you, you've done Broadway, you've got this new show coming out. What kind of films do you want to be making in this next chapter of your career? Oh yeah. What, what yeah. Do you want well, to be doing? I want to do a superhero. I want to do a World War II movie. I want to do a Vietnam movie. I want to do a World War I. I want to do an American Revolutionary War movie. I want to do incredible stories. You know, 6,000 Latinx people between 1830 and 1930 were lynched, burned alive, and shot. A lot of them children crossing the border for school. They would hang them. Uh, I, I want to tell those stories. You know, that's why I feel like Land people disrespecting black people is so crazy because we have such a shared history, you know, the same abuse of Jim Crow existed for land people, no Mexicans or dogs allowed, you know, there, there were those signs everywhere. And uh, we just need to respect each other more. And I want to tell those stories. You know, I really, I really, there's so many great stories of, 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 uh, um, so of Melendez. I want to tell her story. Menendez. She was the, in 1940s. She was fighting segregation in California schools because Latin kids weren't allowed to go in white schools. And she went and fought with uh, the Supreme Court and she paved the way for Brown versus Board of Ed. That's a powerful story. She was given the Medal of Honor by, by Obama himself. Well, John, thank you so much, man. I, I, we really appreciated everything. Thank uh, you for having me, man. I appreciate you guys. Much absolutely. love. Stay positive.
That's it for this 15th episode of the Brown and Black Podcast. I want to thank Calixto Chinchilla and John Legazamo for being on the show. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. Your help allows us to be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at BrownBlackPod, on Instagram at BrownBlackPodcast, and on our new YouTube channel at Brown Black Podcast, where you can see the full 30-minute interview that we had with John Legazamo. See you next week for another episode of Brown and Black. Brown and Black.